says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word, so let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for time with our Bibles open in our laps. Lord, we thank you for graduation. We thank you for students. We thank you for our church families. And we thank you for those guests that are with us as a result of this we recognize at the close of the service. All of these things we thank you for. Uh, We wouldn't have them otherwise. But for now we ask that you turn our eyes upon you as we sing, especially to your word. To whom else should we go? You alone have the words of life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Titus... And we'll get into some of the more traditional uh, introductory things uh, as we go and in weeks to come. But Titus, he's the recipient of this book. It carries his name. Was left in Crete. That's an island in the Mediterranean. And the purpose for his being left there by Paul was to organize a network of church plants. uh, House churches, more than likely. This was before period of time where a church would gather together their resources and build a dedicated building. But uh, the letter written to Titus more or less is to help the church do it right. Uh, These are instructions to a man organizing churches on how to do that. And it's by God's apostle, uh, Paul, to this man Titus, We believe it to be inspired, so this is how God would have us do it. Why is it important to write a short book to a man named Titus by a man named Paul? Uh, Because any church is capable of doing it wrong. Uh, Just because we call it a church doesn't mean that it's doing everything correctly. There are wrong churches. We don't want to be one of them. We want to be a church by the book. So we study the book, and we study one book out of those books. That's what we're doing this morning. Uh, If you think about it, there are ways to evaluate the success or the progress of certain things. If it's uh, a business, is it making money? Are they able to make whatever they make and distribute it and find those to purchase it and such a way that they make money in doing so, well, you'd call that a successful business. Um, If it's a sports team, duh, they win games. If they can't win games, you're saying, well, something's wrong. You can't fire the whole team, fire the coach, right? Maybe it's his fault. But there's ways to evaluate such things. If it's education, you have report cards for that to tell you whether or not you're doing a good job. Let's be glad that report cards aren't the only gauge for such things. I'm glad they don't print that on your diploma that goes on the wall because uh, you'd probably not have hired this guy. Um, I didn't do too well in certain parts of, of my education, especially math. But then 
I started uh, paying my own bills, and if there was a dollar sign in front of the numbers, I figured them out. <laughs> so life has its way. It'll work. Now, a church and how it's determined to be successful or productive is not as simplistic uh, because the, the metrics we might use to evaluate such things can be misleading. Uh, usually it, it's uh, budgets and buildings and bodies. You see that in literature sometimes. Is, are all of those growing or multiplying? Well, yes or no, you can put a pencil on those things, but there are such things as big churches with big budgets and big buildings and lots of bodies that aren't doing it right. In fact, it seems like if you give people what they want rather than what the Bible says, you can grow it faster and bigger. That's not the right way to do it. God has designed the church. We'll learn that here. So it makes sense that he gets to say how the church is put together. He gets to say what way is the right way, and if we can do it that way by the one who created it to start with, then we might not be growing. It could be a scenario where we might not be meeting budget. It could be a situation where, say, things change in our government and we're run out of our building. But if we do it the way this book says it, we can get the, what would you call it, stamp of approval known as well done, good, and faithful church. That is paramount. Now, the way this book is laid out, this is uh, for the future. Chapter 1 is given over to the character and conduct of the church's leaders. So it starts out, if you're going to organize a church, start with uh, the leadership. Then the second chapter is the character and conduct of the church's members. Once you get the leadership straight, then you can get the membership straight. And then chapter 3 is the character and conduct of the church's witness. How does the leadership and the membership affect the community that they live in? That's all in the weeks to come. But uh, let me just I'll describe it this way. This little book is intensely theological but mercifully practical, which is good. Um, when you sign up for classes, you, you're going to evaluate them not on how deep the technicals go, but how much of the stuff you actually use after you've passed the class. Uh, of all the classes that I took, I might be able to remember the professor's name from half a dozen of them because I loved the professor. Not only did they tell me the technicals, what I need to know, but how to use them practically with my hands. If it's just a bunch of gobbledygook, then maybe you can write manuals for the rest of the people who throw them away. Or you can figure out a way to make whatever that machine is or, or trade or whatever work practically and help you. That's what this little book is. It's not just theological, which is great because we need the theology, but you need to know what to do with it. And there'll be times in this book where you just say, my goodness, that's so simple. It has to work. And we'll see this on, on you know, next week and the weeks following. But it's condensed. It's, it's short. There's just three chapters. Uh, think of it as dehydrated or condensed. Do you remember cooking class when you were a kid? And uh, tomato soup was the recipe. It's real easy. Open can, dump the blob out. 
Then go to the sink and fill the empty can up with water. And then put the water onto the blob in the pan and warm it up. It came to you in half its size, but once you add the water. So when we add study, we're going to find out this little book's a lot bigger on the inside than it appeared on the outside. Now, the first verse, first four verses that we read, uh, that didn't sound but so exciting. It's, it's a hello, basically. And if we got any... Uh, English teachers in here. This was once Greek, now it's English, but you notice the periods at the end of verse 4. That's one very long, run-on sentence. It's just a bunch of commas, punctuation, but only one period. And that's just his hello. It's, in fact, the longest introduction to everything Paul wrote but Romans. Romans is huge, so it gets a bigger introduction. But it doesn't look like much. And most consider introductions boring, and uh, there's probably at least somebody in this room who said, great, graduation day, we get an introduction to a short little book that nobody talks about in the New Testament. Yes, that's what we get. Welcome to the real world. Um, you were king of the hill that last day of class, seniors. Now you're like grunts at college or wherever you're going to work or any of that. Everything changes. You'll have lots of introductions from here on out. But they're good. It's what life is. It'll build character. That's what my dad always used to say. If it was hard, it would build character. So we're going to look at this carefully, even his hello, and we're going to see creeping through the introduction, his hello is teaching. That's what he does. He takes something that's helpful and he passes it along. So here's our outline for these first four verses. There's three points. First, he tells us who the church is for. Secondly, he tells us what the church is about. And third, he tells us how we're to know that that's true. So a who, a what, and a how. That's good at breaking things down. Number one, who the church is for. Go back to verse one. Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So two things right out of the gate. He tells us who he is. How would you introduce yourself, especially if you have the credentials of Paul the Apostle? Would you start with the word servant? That's what he does. That, that gives us a lot as far as his perception of his role. And then apostle of Jesus Christ, that sounds uh, sign-worthy perhaps. Maybe you pass a church where it's apostle so-and-so. You know, there aren't any more of those, but people like to use it. Um, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one, a messenger. A servant and a messenger. That, that's who he says he is. But then as to who the church is for, he gets into that with the next phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So if you're putting together service for God and messenger duties, which is preaching and teaching, that's kind of the starter kit for a church. And what's all that for? Who's all that for? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, that word elect can be tricky, can't it? Maybe even controversial. Um, if I have anything to say about that, it would be that uh, even so, it is a biblical term, it's a biblical doctrine, and it's clearly taught in the New Testament. Whether you like it or not, controversial or not, if you like your Bible, get to know what that means and get comfortable with it. You can't cut it out. 
And does it sound as if it's diametrically opposed to uh, your free will to choose your own salvation? Yes, it does. But that's the way it's offered to you. You choose because I've already chosen. Now, it's okay because God's big and he hasn't told us everything. And at some point, we'll understand how this works. We know some things God knows, but on a scale, it's probably closer to infinity that he knows that we don't. So we take his word and we trust him. There's this thing about being chosen before the world was ever made, but then there's this thing about preaching so you can find out that you've been chosen. After you repent and trust the Lord as your personal Savior by your free will. That's what the Bible tells us. So um, one of the things that's helped me as far as swallowing that, because it, it does hurt the brain to think through it, I'm glad it's there, at least for one reason. Because what hope would we have of anyone being saved if all of it rested on us to persuade them? I wouldn't be standing here. You, you, you wouldn't call me preacher. You'd call me salesman. <laughs> and I'd need some sales skills to overcome your buyer's resistance and convince you that this is what you need. I'd rather just tell this as God wrote it and let the Holy Spirit deal with you as to whether or not you'll be making that decision. I've been faithful if I can pull that off, and he gets all the glory because he's the one who paid for that salvation. So I like predestination. I like the fact that God had me figured out before I figured him out and not the other way around. I don't want to limit him. I think that's enough to move on. But answering the question, who is the church for? Those elect, the ones that are his, he chose. Uh, the word adoption is actually used in some of the passages, which is a beautiful picture. Because if you go to adoption agency and you say, I want that one, what did you just do? You chose that one. That, that's what he does. So if there's a church full of Christians that have been chosen, who repent and believe, who is this for? The church? It's for the church. Does that mean the church is for you? I mean, if you've ever heard someone say, you need to think of it this way, the church is not about me. That's not biblical. The church is about you. Rephrase it, and it's wrong. The church is all about me. You don't want to be that person. This church is all about me. No, this church is about all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, elect for the sake of of your faith and your knowledge and your hope. We'll get to that here in a second. That's what the church is about. So look at um, part of verse 1 into verse 2. This is what the church is about. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So you got three categories. If you want to circle these words, I'd recommend it. Mark your Bible so... It can mark you. Um, faith, for the, sake, for the sake of faith in God's elect. Also, their knowledge of the truth, faith, knowledge, and then in hope of eternal life. Faith, knowledge, hope. This is what the church is all about. Let's look at all three. First of all is your faith. You got to believe. We want to make faith some fuzzy thing that nobody can touch. Well, it's just understanding this book and believing that it's true. 
Now, don't just hang your faith in open space. There's lots of hooks here. There's historical accounts. There's miracles. There's watching people you know to be scoundrels who are saved and turn completely around and act like Jesus instead of their scoundrel selves. You might be one of them. These are things that you can use to verify these things. So it's what we believe. And not only that, but to believe that the Bible is a comprehensive thing. You believe it all or you believe none of it. Because you can't just believe some of it. Cherry picking, that is, doesn't, doesn't work that way. Either God really existed, exists now, exists forever, past and future, created everything that is, sent his son to bail us out from rebelling against him in the garden. And the swap looks something like this. All your sins... He takes on his shoulders all his righteousness he gives to you so that his father can look at you and see his son. You get to go to heaven, and it's paid for by his son's death. Either that's the way it works, or that's not the way it works. But if that's the way it works, then it changes everything about your life. If Jesus really raised from the dead, you have nothing to worry about eternally. But if you don't believe this stuff, then you really are on your own, and pretty much your mileage may vary. Just pick something that makes you happy until your clock runs out. But we got to be honest with this. This is the faith. It's all in. Now, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, you are going to have to step out there on faith, because you can't completely and totally have every last question of yours answered. But the big ones are. That's faith. Then there's knowledge. Um, I would love to think that people thought that Wake Chapel was a theological church. They study their Bibles at Wake Chapel. But how does that make you feel to be around a bunch of people that seem like all they ever want to do is just know more about their Bible? Does that make you feel nervous? Um, It shouldn't. It's a good thing. It might make someone feel smaller if the other person uh, in their attempt to learn everything about the Bible puffs themselves up. Or they're just that guy that basically knows all the answers to the Bible trivia game but couldn't win someone of the Lord if their life depended on it. They can't put it all together, right? But knowledge, there has to be said something about knowledge. If, If knowledge is no good, then why do we fool with graduate Sunday and recognize, hey, you finished 12 grades. Uh, There's something to be said about it. And a Christian who knows their Bible is a much more mature Christian than someone who doesn't or doesn't see that it's important. Um, If Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, wouldn't it follow that you're only as free as the truth you know? A lot of folks that say, I just, I'm, I'm just, Christian life's just beating me all up. I don't know what to do. Read your Bible. Yeah, it hurts. It'll wear you out. People will hate you for it. But the Lord will tell you that he said that a long time ago. And this is just the practice. The real game's eternity. Know your Bibles. Notice what follows the knowledge. Which accords with godliness? How do we figure out how to be godly? Some type of self-help class, Amazon, uh, interventions, shaming. No. We read our Bibles. God tells us. 
There's no such thing as true knowledge of God without godliness that follows. Uh, we're going to call this sometimes, this whole series, Believing is Behaving. You believe this stuff, you have to behave that stuff. So then there's hope. This might be one of the better ones. What do people put their hope in? And isn't that a term that could be used a lot of different ways? You hear somebody say, well, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope they have that soup at that restaurant today. It's been a while since they had it. It's really good. Is that really something you wrap your life around? No. It's just saying this is what I'm wishing for. Uh, it's still pathetically short, but it's a little closer. When you hear that line in the movie some of you have seen, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. If you don't get those stupid plans to the people with the X-wing fighters that can blow the Death Star up, we're all going to die. There's only one way out of this, right? Well, that's close. There's only one way out of this, but the real hope is knowing that it's as sure as the nose on your face. Bad thing is, a lot of people don't. It's done dawn on them until they're standing out there saying goodbye to someone, and their life instantly feels a lot quicker and a lot shorter. So they start thinking that way. Maybe in ten years I'll be able to tell you what it's like to think of my father in heaven, rather than my father at two twenty Twin Oaks Lane. But either this book is good for that, or I'm a phony. And you should go somewhere else. It has to be real. It has to be comprehensive. This is our hope. It comes from knowledge and it starts with faith. So that's those three things. That's what the church is about. We're here to exercise our muscles in faith and learn with our brains and then encourage one another in the eternal hope that we have when this is over. That, that's where we're going. Now, he... Uh, finishes that idea, the hope of eternal life, heaven, which God, we sang about this, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Why would, why would Paul put it that way, God who never lies? It's just a reminder of who he is as he describes himself in Scripture, right? Here, this is good for uh, you know, your postgraduate life. Somebody at some point is going to ask you a dumb question about the Bible in hopes to trip you up. Something like, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And you look at him and say, no. And they'll go, ha ha! That's what I was looking for. So God can't do everything. And then you look at him and say, no, you dummy. No, don't say that. That's one of those words that we're taught not to say. You don't call people dummies, even though they're acting like one. They are not dummies, unless they are one, but that's for their mom to judge, not for you. Um, tell them God can't make a rock so big that he can't pick it up because it involves a contradiction, and God can't contradict himself. There's lots of stuff God can't do. He can't die and stay dead, and he can't lie because he's the truth. So what Paul is saying here is, you don't need to put your eternal security on something subjective like the way you feel about it at the present moment. God promised it before he made the planet, and he can't lie. There's no greater guarantee. That's what this church is for. It's for you to know that and repeat it and be encouraged by it and be strengthened in it and expand your knowledge on it and all these things. 
And then how do we know it's true? That's the third point. That's verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So the best news the world has ever heard from the guy who can't lie and promised before that world was ever created did what? He manifested it. How many of you use the word manifest this week? Maybe you were reading a novel or something about some ship and the ship's manifest. Or maybe you're reading like old literature. It'd have to be old. Nobody uses that word anymore. Manifest. It means made known. You might hear it say at the doctor who's saying, well, uh, this could be wrong with you, this could be wrong with you, this could be wrong with you, but we'll have to wait and see how the symptoms manifest. If you've got, say, a scratchy throat and a cough and a fever and you're sneezing all over the place, that's the way a virus manifests itself through symptoms. So if God's going to tell us this stuff, he's got to let it be known somehow. So best news in the whole world, he's promised that you can have eternal life, and he's going to let the world know it, and how does he do it? First of all, it said it was at the proper time. How many of you think the proper time was 2,000 years ago? Why wouldn't he wait until Twitter came out and he could just tweet everybody? (laughs) Because there's more to it than that. I'd much rather have a thousand years worth of dramatic history with a group of people laid out in this book to show how it happened. But how did we get that message? How do we have this? He told it to a group of guys who told it to a group of guys who told it to other guys, who told it to more other guys. It's word of mouth. And there's a technical term for word of mouth when it comes to this book. And in a somewhat of a specific situation like this, preaching. Now, preaching, by God's definition, is a foolish thing. It's not the way the world would do it. And it's that way on purpose. Uh, This is 1 Corinthians 1. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God, this is the way he wanted it, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So that's what we do. This is called the centrality of preaching. It's priority number one in a church. No preaching, no church. We'll learn that in the book of, of, of Titus greatest ailment I see in a church is when the church loses its confidence in this book to do the work of the ministry, that preaching won't be enough. We'll need to do this and that and, you know, something else. Uh, Churches can, can get goofy and in a hurry when they abandon preaching as being the ultimate engine that runs the church. And, and I'm not talking about the guy who does the preaching. A guy can let the preaching out from the book where it's already contained. You you, you know what I mean? You don't need to tell a a lion to do his thing. You just let him out of the cage, right? Um, If you don't have that, then you resort to gimmicks and special events and whatever's new and entertaining and keeping up with the other churches. You know what popped into my mind when I thought about that? my illustration maker up in his brain of mine. Y'all ever seen that movie, Napoleon Dynamite? Some of you have. It's a favorite in our home. It's, it's ridiculous. 
It's a high school student, and uh, his grandma got injured on a four-wheeler. Um, his uncle Rico's coming to stay with him, and Rico's just a kind of a drifter. He's always got these schemes to make some money, so he's taking his nephew with him to sell these uh, kitchen bowls door-to-door. And in one scene, he's about to settle the deal with this couple. They're sitting at the kitchen table, and he's got this box that says 32-piece set on the side of it. And then he pulls out of this other box this mini sailboat, like the dumb ones you see at the beach gift shop that nobody buys. Well, maybe some people do. Right? And you see the wife whisper, He's going to sell the kitchenware because of the stupid mini sailboat. It's so corny and stupid that it's funny because we know that people come to our door, they used to, try to sell us something we might need by a gimmick of something that we might want but really don't need. That's the way some churches operate. I heard not long ago that on Father's Day, there was this church that spent thousands of dollars of their members giving to fill this big, huge kiddie pool-like thing that you see at these fishing and boat shows that they fill with catfish or, or uh, trout. And you got these little cane poles, and they'll put one of those little eggs out of a jar on it. And anybody can dangle that thing in there and catch one of these fish they've starved for about two weeks. And that's what they did for Father's Day. And I'm thinking, it was a church that told these fathers that they're good daddies if they take their kid to a kiddie pool and shoot this fish in a barrel and take it home. I think they even cleaned them for them. But nothing about, hey, dad, why don't you actually learn to fish and then show the kid how to fish and then go someplace on God's green earth in a real stream or a real river or a real pond or a real ocean and catch your own fish like a real gentleman. That might sound like a good dad. And who taught him to do this? A church on Father's Day? I hope they hauled off and preached, taught him something other than the wrong way to catch a fish so that the kid can grow up and say, yeah, let me I went fishing once. Now, half of you are thinking, he's lost his mind. And he's picking on things he shouldn't pick on. Mine and other churches' business. Yeah, that's what it was. Anyway, I don't think Jesus died and all the apostles but one to preserve a message for us to hand to others to do that kind of stuff on Father's Day. Let somebody else do that. Let's simplify things and do those few things well rather than complicating things and doing everything and maybe forgetting the real thing. And maybe the real thing's getting done, but there's so many other distractions that there's some people that'll never get to the good stuff because you're keeping them happy with the not in the Bible stuff. That's what this book is going to teach us. When you go looking for a church, wherever you land, if you're going to get educated someplace else find a good one and make sure they use their bibles preach their bibles teach their bibles faith knowledge and hope
All right. What do we do with all this? Because at the end of the day, we're going to have to believe that it'll be enough. That that word that's sharper than any two-edged sword is enough to handle the business for which we've been commissioned. We'll need confidence in it. Um, And in the coming weeks, we'll learn that God expects a lot from this church, not just every church. Uh, He'll expect stuff from leadership, from members, from its witness. And it'll all be a command because we're reading Holy Scripture. But as far as what's in this for me, what do we do with this little introduction? What do we do with having known that the church is for us, That's why we go to the trouble, and it's for the purpose of learning and the purpose of our faith and the purpose of our hope. Um, Trying to think through how how, how does this apply, and especially how does this apply to um, an intersection in life where you've completed one task and you've got a lot ahead of you, but this this is a big deal. You've graduated high school. Um, This type of thinking is foreign to where you're going to experience most of life. We don't experience most of life in our churches. We're outside the church, where we work and where we go to buy groceries and all these things. Uh, The idea that this is his church and he adopted us and he gets to say what... It's a lot of he said. and, And all of us get terms like servants and messengers. You know, in our culture, we've basically uh, adopted um, a new slant on a really old idea. The idea goes back to the Garden of of Eden. Uh, God said, don't eat of the tree. The devil said, go right ahead. One of them is wrong. And how did the devil make his, his, his pitch? You know, it'll make you wise. You'll know stuff you don't know. God's holding out on you. You should do it. If you want to do it, do it. And that's the way it used to be. Previous generations, maybe. If it feels good, do it. Now it's slightly uh, modified, but the culture assumes that what you feel about yourself, believe about yourself, or perceive about yourself tells you who you are and what you should be doing. It's not this book that would tell you that. It's your heart, your head that will tell you that. that. That's the way our, our culture works. Um, it's the world's way of saying believing is behaving. You, you need to understand who you believe you are and then behave in that direction and take nothing less than the world stamping that with their approval. You figure out who you are and you make the world say, good job. That's just not the way the Bible teaches us. Uh, to put it in like another sentence from uh, uh, using another person, this is what I feel like, so this is what I should do, and if you tell me that I can't do that or that I should be something or someone other than I feel myself to be, you're attacking the very heart of my personhood. It's not opinions anymore. You disagree with someone as far as who they think they are and what they ought to be doing, you've attacked them. Is that pretty close? It's not like it was before where, you know, everybody's got an opinion. If you don't like who I am, I'll find somebody who does. No, no worries. Now you can get in trouble for saying, I don't agree with someone and the trajectory of their life or what they've chosen to be or, or any of those things. Now, the only way that that would actually work, and we're using our Bible brains now to say, 
Whatever you are, you should go for it. Is if we could eliminate some things, and then it might work. First of all, you'd have to eliminate a sin nature. Our propensity to doing things wrong. And if you could get rid of that sin nature, then you, you might be able to say that our instincts are never self-deceived. How many of you trust your instincts regardless? Well, you're the ones that usually have to say you're sorry more. Because <laughs> we find out from another angle, ooh, that was not at all what I thought it was. It's totally different. I was wrong. My instinct got me in the, the wrong situation. Or if our desires are never self-centered. How, how many of you that have children never realized that that child was selfish? The rest of the world did. We're all selfish. <laughs> I mean, r really. And we write songs about it, right? That song I remember from high school, I'm looking out for number one. Uh, that's just... But... <laughs> So if our desires are selfish and our instincts are misplaced, what about our dreams? Well, it's graduation speech time, right? Follow your dreams. You got to do it. But nobody ever says, follow your dreams unless your dream is stupid. <laughs> because some of us have self-destructive dreams. Who wants to be a rock star? They generally die earlier. It kills them. There are some things that we have too much of. It's going to be a wreck. But we tell them at graduation speeches to do all this stuff. Not taking into effect that we're selfish. So we'll run over people chasing those dreams. Sometimes the dreams are self-destructive. And sometimes our faculties for understanding reality are just messed up. Right? So the idea of be true to yourself is a joke in the real world. But for some reason, that's the flag we wave these days. Now, there is a way, biblically, in which you are to be true to yourself. And this is where we kind of flip it over. We've got our Bibles here. If you've died to yourself, the old man, your sinful self, and now you're alive to the new self, which is in Christ, with the help of his Holy Spirit, you can be true to that person that God created for a relationship eternally and loved you that way so much that he came from heaven to down across to put you back that way. That real self should be let out, but only in that way. And what we're going to read in Titus is how to let a whole church full of people live that identity. And who's in charge of that one? He is. It's, it's the age-old thing. Who's in charge? Is there a God in heaven and he's in charge? Or are we a God unto ourselves and we'll figure it out as we go? It, it really doesn't get any more complicated than that. If the real you is worth letting out, the real you has to be dead to sin and alive to Jesus. Now, you can run this right back to what we read. What is Paul doing here? Servant of God. Does that sound like he's in charge? Nope. Apostle, messenger of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like he's sharing his two cents? Nope. And for what? The sake of the faith of God's elect. That's other people. 
Now, Paul did that, served faithfully. He's done. Others have done the same. Your pastor Ross served well, finished his race. My father served well, finished his race. What am I doing? As surely as I'm standing here, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. It's just teaching. It's not the most exciting thing in the world. Some people like to do it because they like people staring at them. I don't. (laughs) One day, I I wish we had a lottery. We'll pick a lottery. You could stand up here for a while. I'll sit out there and we'll all stare at you. You see what it looks like. (laughs) But it's 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 a stewardship of faithfulness. Will I take what I've been given and hand it to somebody else so it can be of help to them on an eternal basis? And then when my time is over, we'll stand out here and kind of like uh, Al Mohler said, love the way he put it, when, when you've achieved your end, the end of the race, even faithfulness, they'll all gather in a cemetery, they'll put you in a hole, kick dirt in your face, and then go back inside the building and eat potato salad. <laughs> and somebody else follows after them. It's not about the man, it's about the message. That's what each of you as Christians, it's not about you as much as it is the message. But you need to know how the Lord thinks about you so much that he would die in your place to prevent spending eternity without you. So you're more important than you could ever imagine, but you're less important than you probably act. That's a little dose of reality on graduation Sunday. But it gives us a great place and together, we all fit. Who's going to keep going? That, that's, that's the idea. What we're going to be thinking about with Titus is how to run the place now, but how to teach the younger folks so that when we're gone, it keeps going. It's hard to think on a graduation Sunday with all your life ahead of you. Get to 40-something, and you start thinking about how many summers you've got left or your life in weeks the fact that your parents have spent 90% of their time with you already. It's just statistics. Can't even talk. I don't like that because it won't be long before one of mine that's over here will be sitting on the front row too. I'll probably let Seth do it that year. (laughs) It'll be like a space of several years. I'm on the pew crying instead of up here talking. But I think that's enough. What we're going to do is we're, we're going to sing our, our, our final song. And uh, after we do that, uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to read off the names of our graduates.